Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is December the 13th, our third Sunday of the Advent season. Welcome to all of you who are here joining us in person, and welcome to those who are joining us online. Just a reminder, if you're online and having any difficulties, feel free to text Don Connor or write a message in the message bars there on, on YouTube. We can see that here. Right, as we are beginning, are there any announcements anyone wishes to share today? All right, well, we have all the beautiful poinsettias up here. Uh, please don't grab them quite yet. Uh, take them home um, if you have some up here uh, December the 20th. Um, take them on home then. A reminder that we continue with our Bible study on Tuesday nights and that we are continuing to collect underwear and socks for the kids closet downstairs I do have a couple notes that I was asked to share as we move into our times of joys and concerns and updates a thank you from Dwayne Hawk for all of the cards and calls that he's received over the week he is at home and recovering well and hopefully we'll be able to see him soon from our brother Mark he has an angiogram scheduled for January the 20th. Well, they're going to look a little closer at the aneurysm and make decisions on how to best approach surgery or care for it. Are there any other joys or concerns you wish to share? A thank you from Doug, and I'm, I'm guessing I can assume Chris as well and all the family um, for all the support they received from the congregation. Um, during this process of, of uh, their mother going to be with God. Well, I do have one more announcement, but I am going to save that for the end of this next section as we prepare the light, the third candle. The Advent season is the preparation for the birth of the Christ child. Part of our celebration is the lighting of the four candles representing hope, peace, joy, and love. These themes draw us back to the experience of Mary and Joseph and the experiences of the Jews waiting for the Messiah to come and look forward towards the ministry and the mission of the child. But they hit closer to home. For many of us, it echoes the preparation of new life. The hope you first feel when you realize that you may have a baby on the way. The peace that comes as the pregnancy moves through the stages towards times of lesser risk. The joy of being able to share that secret that you've held close to your chest for months with your community and family. And finally, the joy of holding that new life in your arm. I mean, that love of holding that new life in your arm for the first time. It's with great joy today that I light the third candle. Joy for the season, and joy because I get to let go of a secret today too, and publicly celebrate with my friends, family, and community that our family will be growing by one more this June. Which is also the reason why uh, Lauren hasn't been coming. We're being a little extra careful. 
I invite you to enter into this worship with joy. Pray with me. Holy creator, giver of joy, 
he come before you today in the preparation of your birth. We pray that we find joy in our everyday lives, whether the sun is shining or the rain is falling or the snow is accumulating. We ask that we see the glory and the majesty of your works in all things. We thank you. We thank you for community that holds one another close in times of pain. We thank you for community that celebrates as we heal and get better. We celebrate community that holds us close as we wait for more news, not knowing what the future brings us. We ask that we continue to feel this, to be joyful in our family here and abroad, in all the things that happen in our world. We ask, Lord Jesus, as we prepare for your birth, that we find joy. Amen. Welcome here. 
the child of Thank you, Janice. Thank you, choir. That was wonderful. Our scripture reading today comes from Thessalonians, the first book, 5, 16 through 24. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. Blessed is the word. Now, when I, I think of joy in the Christmas season, you know, I think of the characters, or rather the groups of characters and their joy. And the three big ones being, well, the parents, Mary and Joseph. But I spoke about Mary last year, and you may remember that. That was the sermon where I brought Uni the unicorn and put her right here. And then I did Joseph the next week on love. And, you know, Mary saying the Magnificat. You know, those were, that was last year. So I couldn't do that again. All right, well, what about the next group? How about the angels? The ones who deliver the joy, the ones who sing in the heavens. We don't actually know a lot about angels. I mean, if you wanted me to preach a sermon about from the angels' standpoint, it would be a lot of supposition, because I'd just be up here doing the best I can with the tiny amount of material there is. So that leaves me with the shepherds. Shepherds, their work as shepherds, and, well, the sheep, that's a really typical motif throughout the Bible. I mean, famously, there's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. There's Ezekiel 24 that talks about the founding of the new kingdom of God on earth. And there will be a new David. And he will be the shepherd of all nations. It's not surprising. I mean, shepherding and sheep have been a part of Middle Eastern life since time immemorial. When people first started agriculture, it quickly fell into two broad groups. There were the nomadic peoples who continued to wander from place to place, but now had sheep and goats with them. And there were the city folk who raised cattle and pigs. It is among those nomadic folk that God chooses 
the people. We have Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, who traveled from land to land with all their many animals and people. We have Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, who used their wool and their meat to clothe and feed their families. When the 12 tribes settled there in Canaan, the fertile flatlands became farmlands for produce and cattle. But the tradition of raising and shepherding sheep continued in the hill country, in the wilderness. Whenever you hear wilderness in the Bible, in old folk stories, it's the byword for danger. I mean, come on, what's the most regular motif in fairy tales? Somebody goes into the forest that shouldn't go into the forest, and they meet danger. That was true all the way back then. The wilderness meant lions, wolves, cliffs, snakes, thirst, exposure, and the hundreds of other ways you can die. It also meant being at a greater risk of being attacked by bandits, or especially in the case for ancient Israel, being attacked by foreign marauders. It wasn't an easy chat. It wasn't an easy job to do. Now, I probably have been guilty about this last year around this time. I'm not sure. I didn't go through every bit of the sermons I previously read. That shepherding has often been portrayed in Christianity as the outcast job. But it really wasn't, to be fair, in Judaism or at least in Jewish culture, it wasn't thought of as an outcast job. It was an essential job. They needed it to get by. It was part of their history, too. I mean, Ezekiel, Psalms, those are just two times out of the many times that God is regularly compared to a shepherd, positively. If it wouldn't be so positive if shepherds were looked down as at the out, as the outcast of society. They had to be hardy workers, people that could handle whatever nature threw at them day and night, 24/7 hour shifts. It was most likely a very respected job, but it did attract a certain kind of person, someone who could be a little more rough and tumble, who didn't mind being on duty 24-7, who didn't mind being away from home for, well, long spans of time. And it wasn't exactly a job that made you a lot of money. Actually, usually you worked for someone else. It wasn't your own sheep you were shepherding. It was the boss's. And he stayed at home at the farm where he raised cattle. No pigs, they were Jewish. There, there were certainly those who enjoyed their work, but it wasn't the kind of job just anybody would go into, especially if you had better prospects at other things. So why shepherds then? If, if God wasn't sending the first message of the coming of the kingdom to the outcast of society, why send the angels to them? What was the meaning behind that message? The Bible doesn't give us a lot. Luke, just as Matthew did with the Magi, is very short in terms of the history beyond the story. The shepherds are there. They are met by the angels. They're terrified. They get the message from the angels and then decide to go see the baby. They see said baby. 
and then they go out and they tell everybody else and they're amazed by the news. There's just not much more than that. In fact, that's pretty much all there is, period. For those, though, that were reading Luke's first drafts of the gospel, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as mysterious. I mean, Luke put his words to parchment somewhere about 80 to 100 years after Jesus' birth. Their cultural lenses, then, would have been far more in line with, well, what had happened just probably less than a century before for them. So we can study, that's why we study anthropological things of the ancient Near East, so that we get a better idea of how they would have viewed it. But then, even with all that studying, if we watch the scripture closely as we study the writings of the ancient rabbis, we hit another stumbling block, and that stumbling block has a name, Luke. You know, each of the Gospels is individual, it's different, it's special. You know, Mark is oldest, it's the most succinct, it's intended for a wide audience, and Mark wasn't very fluent in Greek, so it's a pretty simple to read uh, book. Matthew, on the other hand, is highly educated in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. He's highly educated in the scriptures. And he wants everyone who reads his book to understand how the, me- the story of God starts with Adam and goes through Jesus and beyond. Matthew's also really concerned that we learn how to live our lives through the message of Jesus, how to live in community, which considering that, it's really not that surprising that Matthew is the favorite of the Gospels for most Anabaptist groups. John is the strange one, steeped in Jewish and Greek faith and philosophy. He tries to bridge the gaps, using symbolism and metaphor and poetry to describe difficult esoteric concepts which he needed to do because he was writing to an increasingly Hellenized church, people who engaged in Greek philosophy and Jewish faith and, well, Christian teachings all at the same time. Now, none of the books actually talk about the authors themselves. They never talk about themselves. You get a little bit of Luke in the book of Acts, but that's it. But there's something that Mark, John, and Matthew have in common. They're all Jewish Christians. But Luke wasn't. We get little hints of it. We know from his travels with Paul that he wasn't circumcised and he wasn't always welcome in synagogues. It seems that Luke is a Gentile, one of the outsiders that was allowed in after Cornelius was baptized. He travels along with his friend and mentor, Paul. He learns a great deal about Judaism and Hebrew scriptures, and he had an excellent teacher. Paul was one of the most intelligent rabbis of his day. He knew the Gospels. Well, he didn't know the Gospels. He knew the ancient text better than most anyone else. So by the time that Luke is writing his Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, He's an old man who has been studying scriptures for something like 50 years. But he's still a Gentile. He's still someone who grew up in, with Grecian roots. I mean, no more than if I were to go live in India today, 
I'd still be American, even if I lived there for 50 or 60 years. I still have that basis of growing up here. So he was perfectly aware when he sat down and carved into the wax-covered tablets, that was what you wrote your first draft into, because parchment's expensive. As he wrote into there, he understood exactly his audience and how they would perceive this. He understood how the Jews were going to read it and how the Gentiles were going to read it. So, yes, as I've already said, the Jews would have read it thinking about the shepherds. Read the shepherds thinking about their history, about David, the Psalms, God, the message of salvation coming to those living in the wilderness living on the edge of life and death and relying on God for survival, just like their ancestors had done, waiting there at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness for the good news of the covenants, how God came to Elijah in the wilderness, how David hid in the wilderness in the caves and the mountains, the same ones that the shepherds were living in. This was a message a clarion call from the past. Make, way straight the, make straight the way of the Lord from the wilderness. But we also can't forget what the Greeks read, which is the way that we have generally read it here in the U.S. Shepherding was respected in Jewish culture. In Grecan culture, no. You did not want to be a shepherd. Shepherds were the jobs that the slaves and those who were too poor to do anything else did. It was the bottom of the bottom kind of agricultural duties. Not to mention, you were considered a transient lowlife. You couldn't be trusted. Be here today, gone tomorrow. Probably cheat everyone on your way. I tried to think of good modern equivalents the best I can come up with is a Jewish understanding would be like an angel appearing to a family who is attempting to live off the grid and be fully self-sustainable, or at least somewhat self-sustainable in the ways that our ancestors once were or perceived to be. While a Greek understanding would be much more like the angels appearing to undocumented migrant laborers. Luke walks both paths simultaneously. God speaking to those on the outside and God speaking to those through history. The Bible's like that. It's often speaking two truths at the same time or many truths. There's one famous passage, which I'm waiting to do a sermon on at some point, which is famous for having about eight different translation possibilities. All of them make great sense and fit well with the gospel. That's just the way the Bible works. But in either case, either case, the people that God visits and gives the joy to are those who are living on the edge of society. They may have been respected, they may have been not respected, but they were still the first to hear about and to celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Isaac was like that. He was born on the edge of society, but also a part of it. He was loved by many and feared by many. He was born in 1674 in England, and his father was a nonconformist. 
Now, that, that meant something very specific in 1674, well, 1600, England. You know, the Anglican church had now been around for a while, and people had decided that they were going to, well, the king decided that they were going to make the Anglican church standardized. This is the way it's going to work. And so they created something called the Book of Common Prayers. Those who decided they weren't going to follow that book were referred to as nonconformists. And this term applied to people like, well, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Quakers, Moravians. If the brethren had been in England, we would have been nonconformists. You could still practice your faith. You could still do what you wanted for the most part, but there were limitations on what you could, or didn't, could say and could not say or could do and what could not do. Mr. Watts, Isaac's dad, found that out the hard way when he kept being put into jail for speaking his mind about his faith too publicly. Isaac was unable, despite his high grades, to go to Oxford or Cambridge because you, could only, you couldn't go there if you were a nonconformist. When he graduated from the small school that did allow nonconformists, he wasn't allowed to get certain positions with the government. And mind you, the English government at this time was a lot of stuff. Everything from trade work to, well, regular governmental work to all the little jobs that make that large empire run. He was banned from any of that. Now, Watts and his family were Congregationalists, which is actually the same kind of thing we are. You know, we, the authority ultimately relies... Um, ultimately is within the congregation, not a denominational structure. But Isaac always took things a little farther. He was a congregationalist. He was a non-denominationalist, which is the way you say that you don't have a creed or confession or you avoid them. He was also more ecumenical, which meant he was okay with working with Christians who weren't also congregationalists. This kind of made him be viewed by other nonconformists with suspicion. That's a dangerous idea. I mean, yeah, to us today, that's not dangerous. I mean, that's something American Christians celebrate, that we can get along with Lutherans and Baptists and Catholics, and it doesn't matter. We can work together for the greater good. Back then, to have no confession, to have no creed, to work with other churches was opening yourself to extreme danger. All it took was a change of power on top, a new king taking the throne, and suddenly you could find yourself put in jail and even executed. So while Isaac did have this small independent church gathered around him where he preached, most other churches kept him at arm's length at best, ignored him if they could help it. But at the same time, Isaac was beloved, not only by that little church, but by people abroad. They may not have admitted it very often, but they did like him overall. He was a warm and funny man. He was also coldly logical, deeply spiritual. It was kind of an odd mix but it worked well for him. He wrote poetry, for instance. Poetry that Lewis Carroll, Alice Wonderland books, he actually parodies a lot of 
a lot of uh, Watts writings. Dickens references it, um, references it directly in his own writings. And believe it or not, Bullwinkle Moose even recites his poetry. How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour and gather honey all the day from every opening flower. How skillfully she builds her cell, how neat she spreads the wax and labors hard to store it well with, food, with the sweet food she makes. In works of labor or of skill, I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief still with for idle hands to do. In books or works or healthy play, let my first years be past, though I may give for every day some good account at last. You can even hear within that a phrase that has become, well, regularly used by our culture. But Isaac also wrote books on logic. He wrote a, actually it was very cleverly titled, Logic, but all about logic and morals. This became the standard for the subject for over a century, and if you were to take a class today, they would still expect you to read it generally. The only thing that makes it hard is that, well, it's written in 1600 English, so it's a little wonky. But this cold logic and warm whimsy combined with his faith, he wanted to do things different. He wanted to bring joy back, and he wanted especially to bring back the Psalms. At this time, the Psalms were read regularly, but no one sung them. He wanted to return that tradition of singing the ancient words, but he also realized that it's not always easy to sing the Psalms. They were written in Hebrew for Hebrew singing. Once you translated it to English, it didn't always work quite as well. So he methodically worked his way through the Psalms and other material in the Bible. And he crafted new lyrics out of them. The warmness showing through his word smithing. Of course, we all know his most famous one. It comes from 98 and 99 of Psalms with a dash of Genesis 3. It opens with the words, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let, every, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Yeah, Isaac Watts has become known as the father of English hymnody. Joy to the world is especially appropriate for today. But if you opened up your hymnals, you'd see that there are a total of 21 hymns of his in our hymnal, including Create My Soul Anew, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and O Bless the Lord My Soul. Like the shepherds of old, the joy of the Lord was passed down to the, uh, to the man who lived on the edge of society, the man who was respected by some and pushed away by others. You know, Mary and Joseph, they had the joy of knowing what was coming. The angels had the joy of delivering the news, but the shepherds had the joy of hearing it. For most of us, we've grown up in the church. We have long since been much more like Mary and Joseph. We've had the joy of knowing what was coming already. Once in a while, we get to be the angels, and we get to tell somebody new of what's coming. Doesn't happen terribly often anymore. 
but it gets to happen once in a while. We get to be like Linus standing there on the stage under that single spotlight. We are not often the shepherds, though. We just don't want to be standing there wide-eyed in the fields with our mouth agape. I think we just don't want to be that outsider. We don't want to be the ones who didn't know. We already know. Therefore, we get to be Mary. We get to be like Joseph. We don't, you know, at the very least, we get to be like the wise men who see what's going on in the skies and know because of our own knowledge. We don't want to be the ones surprised with joy out of nowhere. Whether it's because we don't want to be the Greek outcast or the poor Jewish laborer. We may be like Isaac, we may like the story of Isaac Watts, but it's frightening to go live out on the limb like he did, to be willing to be shunned by those you consider your colleagues because your ideas are just too forward. I lost my train of thought. I knew where I was going right until I said that. And then it went away. It happens sometimes. Sadly, this is the part I practiced but didn't write. <laughs> You're all staring at me. We don't want to be surprised. We don't want to be like the shepherds. But at the same time, the shepherds were the first ones to get to hear, and they were the first ones to really celebrate. You know, I imagine, you know, at this point, you know, Mary has had the baby, and she's probably celebrating that she's done having the baby. And I'm guessing that Joseph is celebrating because they've gotten to somewhere, and he, Mary has had the baby, but they knew that was coming. The shepherd's joy is more pure. They're simply joyful because what they had been waiting for has finally come. And they're the ones who have continued this ancient tradition, sitting out there in the same hills and mountains that their ancestors once walked. Even before the kingdom of Israel was founded, this is the same land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all walked. They get to be the ones the first know to be surprised by that new joy. So let's be surprised with the new joy. Be willing to open our eyes as we're going about our regular work, whatever that is. I don't think any of you have been hanging out in the fields with sheep lately. I don't know, maybe you have, but my guess is not really. But be, re be ready to be open to the possibility of finding that joy in your everyday work when suddenly out of nowhere, great news is given to you. Right now, we're getting ready for that great news of the child to be born. And we know and expect that joy. We're like Mary and Joseph still. But let's be ready just in case that angel shows up and says, guess what? I've got great news for you. Let's be willing to be the outcast for believing that there's something more coming. 
Let's be willing to be the, pariah, the societal pariah because we're willing to step out on the edge of that limb and live a life that we think is closer to what the child is going to call us to. Let's just be joyful and be surprised. Thank you. A reminder that we do have two hymns that if you wanted to stay and sing, you are invited to do so. But as you go out into this world today, be ready to spot an angel, to be surprised by an angel wherever they may be, and be willing to live your life even if it's the scary way, because you never know when that angel's going to come and what you're going to be called to. But above all, be joyful. Jesus is coming. Amen.